Today, we are going to review and study some most fascinating ideas in today's Parsha. It comes from the Lakut Sichos from the Rebbe in this week's Parsha, Volume 15, the third talk on the Parsha of Ayichi. But because this talk is so fascinating, it's so I think one of the most fascinating talks in how the Rebbe builds up a understanding of details and nuances in today's Parsha, understanding what the blessing is that Jacob gave to his first oldest son, his firstborn, and why he tells him that this amazing blessing is not going to be for you, and he gives it to his son Judah, Yehuda. So to understand this, I first want to share with you a personal family story, which I I don't know anybody else that got this expression of a blessing from the Rebbe. In our family, in the Deitch family, twice the Rebbe used this expression, blessing, that was really reserved for Ru- for Reuben, the oldest son. That blessing that was Jacob uses for Reuben in today's Parsha, the Rebbe said it twice, this expression of blessing in our family. I'm going to tell you both stories as an introduction to the Sicha. Number one was in 1963, somewhere during that year, the Rebbe came out with a rule about drinking alcohol. And he did, he made a rule that you're not allowed to drink excessive amounts of alcohol. It's not a... Uh, a Jewish thing and a Hasidic thing, but he made this ruling for all Hasidim that you're only allowed to drink at one setting for bringing get together three small shot glasses, so not a big seven ounce cup, but only you know a small shot glass, and three. It was changed to four between three and four has been the Rebbe's uh, statement about it. Pretty much it's four shot glasses you can have at a Fabrengen. And this this it was kind of like, like a decree, you could say, maybe. It was a, you know, a, a rule that he put into place. And if you were a chassid, you have, to, you have to follow the Rebbe's instructions. And he says you can't drink more than this three or four shot glasses. And it wasn't easy for everybody. He said that this instruction rule is only until you're 40 years old. After 40, he said he's not mixing into that. So after 40 is different. But when you're younger and you're not so thought through on your actions, you know. So he made this thing. So that coming year on Sukkot. So since my grandparents got married in Russia uh, right after Sukkot time. And they never had, you know, a proper real wedding celebration. With you know, with lots of family and friends, it was a small little thing that they made. It was after the war, and everybody was trying to get out of Russia, especially religious Jews. So it was very difficult to uh, make uh, big, you know, religious weddings. So every year on Sukkot, Shmini Atzeres, which is the last night that you eat in the Sukkah, they would make a big fabringen in their Sukkah. Their Sukkah would get jam packed, and they would serve lechayim with no limitations. So my grandfather, he went to the Rebbe and he said, what should I do since you put in this new rule? What is the plan for my Fabrengen and my Sukkah? Should I cancel the Fabrengen? 
Like, you know, what's, what do I, I want to do the right thing? You know, what should I do? Should I cancel the Fabrangan? So the Rebbe said, on the contrary, in your sukkah, it should be beyeser se'es u beyeser az, which means with a greater amount of lifting up, which we're soon going to learn the details what that means. Elevation should be in a greater way and it should be in a more mighty way. So that was an amazing thing to hear. So naturally, the entire Crown Heights, if you wanted to go to a sukkah where they had a approval to have a Kiddush even bigger than before, it should be with, with greater intensity, that's the sukkah you went to. So the old joke is that uh, maybe it's not such a joke, but a lot of people used to try to steal a bamboo mat and then they called their sukkah an extension of this sukkah. So that's always the way it been. You want to be involved with that sukkah so you don't have limitations for l'chaim. So that's the first time he used that expression from today's parsha blessing. Going forward to 1969, my grandfather passed away uh, he had uh, a heart attack and he passed away at the age of 51. And my parents were engaged. It was middle of the months of their engagement. And right before uh, Rosh Hashanah time, they got married. So but before their wedding, they went into the Rebbe for a private audience, as was the custom those days, to get a blessing and direction for your future. So one piece of this uh, private audience was that the Rebbe instructed my father and mother that instead of moving out to open up a Chabad house, which was what my father wanted to do, and my mother, uh, may she live well and long, that was their goal, that's what they wanted to do, to move out somewhere and dedicate their life in bringing Yiddishkeit. And the Rebbe told my father that he should go into business and he should follow in the business that his father started, his father started a company called Deitch Textiles. And he said, you should go into that business. And he gave him a bracha. So my grandmother, who was at the in this private audience, she was, you know, a uh, maybe short, but a real strong Russian. And she said to the Rebbe, my son is a botlin. A botlin is like how you say a guy that doesn't know anything when it comes to business. He's a yeshiva student. That's all he did all his life was... You know, he went to yeshiva. He never learned the trades of doing business. He, so she said he's a botlet. He won't be able to, you know, he, what's the kid, what he got to do with business? So the Rebbe smiled and he made with his hand like a, a sign of, you know, like, don't worry about it. And he said that the business should grow in ways of b'yeser se'es u b'yeser az. It should be with this greater elevation, lifting up, and greater might. So that's a very interesting thing that, that he said these two uh, brachas in, in, uh, you know, in the family. So to understand a little bit about what this bracha even actually means, we're going to learn that here today. It's in today's parsha, And it's a fascinating nuances and details that literally lights up this whole subject of the Parsha and who's really, who's the oldest and who really becomes the leader and the strongest of all the tribes. So Jacob, before he dies, he calls in all his children and he tells them he wants to give them a blessing. To his oldest, oldest son, 
His name is Reuben, Reuven. And Reuven, he says, Bechayri Ata, you are my eldest. Yeser Se'es V'yeser Uz, with greater lifting and with greater strength, would normally go to you because you're the first. But since Pachas Kamayim, since you were so hasty, fast, like water, Al Taisar, you will not get this extra blessing. So even though you're the oldest and you deserve these great blessings, you did something so fast, you acted so swiftly like water, and therefore you're not going to get this extra blessing. Now, obviously we need Rashi to explain to us, to fill in the gap here. <laughs> What's, what are we talking about here? What is, first of all, what does the actual blessing mean? And what is it that Reuben was hasty Fast like water that he can't get this extra blessing. What, what, what is the blessing? So first, Rashi explains to us the words that read "yeser seis." He says "yeser seis" means with greater lifting up is alluded to in the blessings of a kohen. The kohen family people. How do they give a blessing? When a kohen wants to give a blessing, he lifts up his hands. Right? He lifts up his hands and he bestows a blessing upon whoever the recipient is. So Rashi says, when the word says, yes sir, with more se'es, lifting up, it refers to another place that we have in the Torah of lifting up, which is nesias kapayim, that's the expression of the blessings that the Kohen gave where they lift up their hands onto another people. So the first blessing of more, of, of lifting refers to the blessings of the Kohen ability of giving blessings. What does it mean with greater might? Might refers to sovereignty, kingship, kingdom. So the blessing that really is fitting for Reuben as the firstborn is, he should have extra power of the Kohen power. Extra yeser seis, nesias kabayim. And he should also have yeser us, more might, which refers to the idea of being a ruler of kingdom. And Rashi continues, what caused that you should lose these above blessings, that you shouldn't get them? So Jacob explains this to his son, he says, Pachas Kamayim, you were swift. And when you do something in swift, you do it like confusing, in a confused way, in a, with confusion, that you haste, you hasted, you went so fast to show your anger about the story where Jacob Let's fill in the story so we'll understand what the story is. What was the story where he hastened to show his anger? So the story is that Reuben realized after Rachel dies, Rachel died on the birth stool of giving birth to Benjamin. Reuben was brought up in a house where he always saw that his father 
loved Rachel more than Leah. Now, when, Le- when Rachel dies, Reuben says to himself, what's going to be tonight? My father, Yaakov, is going to come home. And I hope now he'll finally be able to give the right attention to my mother, Leah. Instead of him always going to Rachel's tent, he'll now spend more time with my mother, Leah. Now, we all know that Leah had a concubine that she gave to Jacob, Zilpah, and Rachel had a concubine, Bila, who she gave to Jacob, right? And Jacob had children with Zilpah and Bila. Now, Jacob's bed was by the tent of Rachel. Rachel dies, so the, the bed is still by the place of Rachel's home, which means that it's there by Bilha, by Rachel's concubine. So Reuben says to himself, this is going to be terribly embarrassing for my mother, that my father is going to go to his second wife, Rachel's concubine. That's going to be a real insult to my father, to my mother, Leah. So Reuben says, let me, not let me, he goes and he takes his father's bed from Rachel's concubine's tent, from Bilah's tent, and he moves it without permission. He goes and he moves it to his mother's tent, Leah. So since Jacob now, before he dies, he's now going to settle that story with Reuben. And he says, because of that story, that you did it, so you acted with such, you know, swiftness and confusion to show your anger and you mixed up your father's bed. Therefore, you are not going to get all the extras of blessings that were really have been befitting for you. So that's what I mean. That's the simple text of what ha- what's happening here of the blessing that Jacob gives and he tells him that this blessing is going to be, is taken away from you. Now, the Targum, the classical translators of the Torah, the earliest translators of the Torah, they're called the Targum. They are in Aramaic. The most well-known one is the Targum of Unklus. That's actually printed right on the side of every Chumash you have right on the side of the Hebrew, you have the Unkelos there, always that Aramaic translation. And they're so precise. It's the earliest translations we have. So they're so you know, precise and careful that we learn a lot of things from them. That's why it's even printed in the Chumash. So the Targum, and actually brings out in a footnote that what he wants to say now is recorded exactly in the following way in the Targum called Unkelos, in the Targum Yonas and Benoziel, also in a Targum called Yerushalmi Talmud Targum. In all those Targums, it, is trans- it says the following when it, when it translates this verse. It says, You, Reuben, were worthy to receive three blessings. What are the three? The firstborn son writes, Bechoira, the rights of a Kohen and the rights for kingdom, of being a king. But they weren't given to you because of the reason that we just mentioned. 
and he brings down that the 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 medrash tanhuma and the medrash beishus rabba. They it's record, this is brought down in many places that there were three benefits for the firstborn, and all three were taken away. So the Rebbe asks a simple question: If the targum and these all these sources say that there were three things here, why does Rashi say that only two things were taken away? Only the rights of the Kohen and the rights of kingdom. Why doesn't Rashi mention the third thing about the firstborn benefits that a firstborn gets? And as a matter of fact, what's really strange about this that Rashi omits one of the three is because the verse itself calls Reuben the firstborn. It starts off, Jacob says, Reuben, my, you are my Bechor. Let me tell you something. And he tells him about these blessings that he's not going to get. So the verse itself identifies him as a firstborn. Firstborns, by the way, they get rights of inheritance. They get double portion of inheritance, right? If you have, let's say, four kids, so the oldest gets a double portion, everybody else gets one portion, and that's the way it works. And, and other inheritant benefits for a firstborn. So why does Rashi omit this that everybody else says, that there's three qualities, and Rashi only says he loses two? In other words, what we want to understand is, does Rashi, is Rashi thinking, is Rashi's way of thinking is that he does not lose the firstborn rights? He only loses the Kohen rights and the kingdom? He says, you can't say that. You can't say that Rashi really believes that he doesn't get the, that he, that he really does not lose the firstborn rights. Why, why can't you say that Rashi is of that opinion? Because there's, a clear verse elsewhere in the Torah. In the Tanakh, that's the place where we have to look for all our sources. In the book called Divrei Hayamim, in the book of Chronicles, over there in Chronicles 1, chapter 5, verse 1, it says there a clear verse. That my son Reuben the first, the oldest, the Bechor, because... You defiled your father's bed. Those are clearly the words. Because you you defiled aviv the bed of your father. The Torah is obviously talking, you know, in a clean way. Because you defiled your father's bed, the firstborn rights was given to Jacob's son Joseph. Now, one of the things about the firstborn rights is, as I mentioned, is that you get double portion. Now, when you talk about, let's explain this here, what does it mean it was given over to Joseph? We all know that eventually the land of Israel is divided up into 12 tribes. Now, Levites don't get any part specific in Israel. They can live wherever they want because they're completely devoted to Hashem. So we're down to 11. Now, one of them, Yosef, had two boys. Yosef had Menashe and Ephraim. Now remember, Jacob has two full wives, not concubines. His full wives is Leah and Rachel. Reuben is the firstborn of Leah 
And Joseph is the firstborn from Rachel. It makes sense that Reuben should get the first one because he was also born first. Many years before Joseph. He's the first of all the 12 tribes. Joseph really is born only number 11. So Reuben doesn't get it because he defiled his father's bed and Yosef gets two portions of the land of Israel. And that's why the land of Israel is divided. The 11 and 12 is not Yosef and somebody else. It's Yosef's two children, Menashe and Ephraim. So you have Reuben, Shimon, Yehuda, Yisachar, Zvulun, Dun, Naphtali, Gad, Asher. And then you have the two, Reuben, Shimon, Yehuda, Yisachar, Zvulun, Dun, Naphtali, Gad, Asher. And then you have the two of Yosef's kids, Menashe and Ephraim. So that's what the verse says. So you can't say that Rashi says he doesn't lose the firstborn rights because there's a clear verse that says that he loses the firstborn rights. And in addition to the verse, Rashi himself, before the story of Jacob's giving the blessing to to all his children, first we have in today's parasha, the story only a couple of verses earlier, where Yaakov gives a blessing to Yosef, the prime minister, the Mishnah Lamelech. He gives his two kids a blessing. Menashe and Ephraim. And then he says to Yosef that the city of Shechem, Shechem Echod, I'm going to give to you, Yosef. Now, one of the interpretations in Rashi is that Shechem is a parcel of land. This portion, parcel of land, I'm giving to you, Yosef. In other words, it's the firstborn rights. I'm giving to Yosef two parts of this. So he's giving him another extra per, per parcel of land. So again, Yosef gets a double piece of land. So you can say that again that Rashi doesn't hold from the opinion that he loses the first rights. Clearly he said that already. Number Another thing Rashi says, Rashi himself says in earlier Parsha, in Parsha Vayishlach, over there after Benjamin was born and Rachel dies, the Torah says now it's necessary to recount the family History, the family's uh, tree. It said that's where it says Benjamin is born, Rachel dies, the story with the beds, and then it says the lists off all the kids again. And it says that who's the oldest born to Yaakov from Leah? Reuben. It says clearly right after the story where Reuben seemingly like he sins by taking, moving his father's bed, it calls him right away a Bukhar, a firstborn. And Rashi right away says there that he's the first when it comes to inheritance. He's the first for serving in the temple. That was the Kohen rites, the first one to do all the services in the temple. And then he says he's the first for minion. Minion meaning counting numbers. In other words, whenever we're going to do censuses throughout the Torah of the tri- different tribes, how many numbers, you know, uh, grew in the, the family, so we list out all Reuben and all his kids, Shimon, all their kids, and so on and forth, and so on and so forth. So, when you're listing off all the names, who are you going to count first? Who gets the honor to be counted first? Reuben again. So you see that Rashi himself says clearly that where does Reuben lose out only in one detail? Not that he loses firstborn rights. He only loses the part in the double portion of inheritance of the land, that Joseph gets two portions for the land. All other rights for a firstborn, he still seems to have. He still gets counted through the rest of the Torah at first. 
he's still called with the name Bechor and so on all, all the way through. So how do we answer these, these two questions of why did Rashi omit what everybody else says that he loses the Bechor? What happened? Rashi clearly knows that he lost the Bechor to the tribes and so on and the verse in Divrayamim in Chronicles. So why does Rashi say only he loses on two things on the Kohen rights and being the king? So the Rebbe says we could possibly analyze it by saying like this. The verse said that you will not get the extras of the extra of lifting up and the extra of strength. Since the verse said the blessing is in lifting up and strength, which means lifting up the Kohen stuff and the kingdom. So therefore, Rashi only sticks to those two. Maybe because the verse itself said only those two. So he says, if that's the case, if that's the case, that that's why he's saying only those two, that only gives an answer on the literal leather, letter, on the literal sense of the letters of the verse. That the verse only mentioned two blessings, so therefore he says he loses only the two. But not that he agrees that you don't, he didn't lose the third. But nevertheless, what's difficult to understand is why in the verse, why is the firstborn benefits, the Bechor benefits, different why is it different in the verse only quotes two of the blessings, the coin and the kingship? Why, don't, why doesn't the verse mention more clearly? The Targum has to come and tell us that, he, that they loses all three. Why doesn't the verse actually say he loses all three, only the two? Now, in order to understand this, the Rebbe says, let's, basically what he's doing now is he's saying, let's put aside this whole subject that we just had. Let's move into the brother who actually gets all the blessings, or these blessings. Instead of Reuben, who gets it? Judah gets it. Now, in other words, those, these ideas of kahuna, which Reuben's not getting, and kingdomship is going to go in, in Yehuda. We look a little bit ahead in the verses, and you see, regarding the blessings of Yehuda, and we have to analyze those blessings, and then we're going to come back to appreciate the Reuben's thing, and the difference between Reuben and Yehuda. On the verse that says the blessing to Yehuda, it reads like this. Gur Aryeh. Aryeh means a lion. Ari. You are a young lion, Yehuda. Mitelef. You have succeeded from devouring Bini, my son. Alisa, you have elevated from that. In other words, you have come out, instead of devouring my son Yosef, you came out of that, you, Alisa, you had Aliyah out of that, you have elevated out of that. Now, on those words, Rashi says, what is this thing that he was, he was being, he's being accused of devouring, and he came out of that, he didn't end up devouring. What's this talking about? So, it says like this, when the brothers came to their father. And they said, Dad, Yosef was eaten up by an animal. Jacob, naturally in his mind, 
would accuse his own kids for setting up this terrible thing that happened. Because Yehuda was strong like a lion. Hence, he now calls him again the lion. So he accuses that maybe you're the one that actually devoured devoured him because you're like a lion. So when you say that it was eaten by an animal, <laughs> who's the animal? <laughs> you're that animal. So you have now proven to me that it's not you. In other words, I'm giving you a blessing that you're young like a lion because it has been proven to me that you are not the one that devoured him. So it's true. What I thought that it could have been you has been proven now. Your innocency, you have elevated, you had Aliyah, you ascended from this concern that you were the one that devoured him. That's what Rashi interprets on the word when it says that Jacob said, you're a young lion, Yehuda, who came out of devouring my son. What does it mean on the word devouring that I I suspected that you were the one that devoured him and you came out of that proven to be innocent. Now on the next word, the next Rashi, Rashi says on the words, my son, there's three words he said there. You're the young lion, right? You're like the strong, mighty, young, like a young lion who from, the, from devouring my son, you have elevated. So when it says those, there's miteref b'ni alis, alisa. So he says on the Rashi, says on the words b'ni alisa, my son has ascended. And those words Rashi says, ah, you know what it means ascended? You ascended from two things actually. You have ascended in the concern that I thought that you were the one that that devour that was going to devour him. But now I found out that you were the one on the contrary. You're the one that saved Joseph. When Joseph was put into a, the pit, Yehuda looked at his brothers and he said, guys, ma betza. What gain, what profit could we possibly get by putting our brother here into the pit? Let's take him out and let's sell him. Let's sell him as a slave. So you have elevated, you have come out, you came up. What does it mean my son came up? My son, you came. You have elevated that you have now become clean because I found out that you're the one that said, Ma betza, what would be the gain to keep him in the pit? Let's, let's sell him better. So because of you, he didn't die in the pit. That's one story where you came out of. Now Rashi adds, there's another biblical story where you, my son, have ascended from another story. We have the well-known story with Yehuda And Yehuda had a couple of boys and his first son married a woman named Tamar and his first son, Er, dies. His daughter-in-law marries his second son, Onain. And Onain dies. Now, the daughter-in-law is up to marry the third son. And Yehuda says to her, you know, 
One day you're going to marry her, but not today. I mean, it's, you know, it's too close. Let's give some time, you know. So the story goes, it's a, a lengthy story. You could check it up uh, yourself in Parsha Vayeshev there. And over there, it basically has the story that Yehuda is traveling and he ends up in a relationship with Tamar, not realizing who she is. And eventually she, the word is out that Tamar is pregnant Nobody when she, but she was dressed as a harlot, so nobody knew that Yehuda didn't even know who he had relationships with. But the word got out that Tamar is is pregnant, and in that city, the law was punishable by death to be burnt. Sreifa, punishment of of being of burning alive. Now, Tamar doesn't want to embarrass her father in law that he's the one that had the relationship with her. So she had, from that relationship, she had had a guarantor from him of a, 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 a bag, a, a cane. She had some stuff from him. So she takes these items and she goes to Yehuda and she says, I just want you to know that whoever is the owner of these items is the father of my babies that's in me. Now, Yehuda has two choices here. One choice is he could say, you know, sorry, terrible. I can't believe, you know, that you had this sin. Nobody could prove nothing. And she gets burnt and finished. But Yehuda doesn't do that. Yehuda says the famous two words, which are very, very difficult for most people to say. He says, Tzadka mimeni. You are the righteous one. And this is from me. He admits to his sin. Now she doesn't have to get killed for this. But Yehuda, you know, stands up to take, to take the blame. So his father is telling him, says Rashi here, that when it says, my son, you have ascended, it means you have ascended also out of that story that you admitted your sin. So two things. You are the one that stopped for Yosef to get eaten by the snakes and the scorpions in the, in the pit and starvation and so on. And you're the one also that admitted to the sin of Tamar. You came out, you know, in, not innocently, but honestly, at least from both stories. Now, as the Rebbe asks the question, Rashi, remember, had two Rashis, two separate Rashis. One was on the word devouring, and he said that has to do with that I accused you for devouring Yosef. And then a second Rashi on the words, my son has elevated, Rashi says, you have come out elevated from both stories, the Yosef story and also from the Tamar story. That means that Rashi came up with some idea that when you say the words, my son, you have come out, you have elevated, you have come out clean, from, it comes up with two stories, Yosef and Tamar. Where does Rashi get this from that it refers to that story too? Especially the word devouring in Hebrew here is teref. Now the word teref is already associated, the same word in the story of Yosef. We have the word that his brothers took the coat and they said that he was devoured by an animal. So we have that word in relation to the story of Yosef. It makes total sense that when Jacob says to Yehuda that you have come out from devouring, it means the story of Yosef. Why does Rashi have to come up with this idea that when it says that my son, you have been 
elevated, you came out, also means the story of Tamar. In other words, how from the word miteref, from devouring, does Rashi stretch it to mean also the story of Tamar, both stories. And another thing that's not understood, what is the, what's the pressing What's, what's Rashi being pressed so strong that he feels that according to the literal story of, the, of the, the text of the story that you have to say that Yaakov is referring to two stories as one continuation. Not, and like Rashi says, the story with Yosef devouring, being accused of devouring him and with the story that Tamar almost was killed. In other words, Rashi's making it very clear that the two stories are both connected with devouring. How do you explain that? How do you explain that Rashi, where does he get this from? And what's pushing him to make this connection that both stories are connected with Yehuda? Where does he get this connection here from? That when he says, my son, you have elevated, uh, it means both. So the Rebbe says like this, on the first question, how Rashi came up that on this word, miteref, from being devoured, it refers to both stories. He said, you can answer this in, like because you could interpret the Rashi in two ways. Not, not the Rashi. You can interpret the verse. In other words, you could read the verse in two ways. There's a question, where do you put the comma? Now this is fascinating because again, when you look in a Torah, not when you look in a printed Chumash book, <laughs> over there, all the commas are there. But really, these three words, where do you put the comma? Do you say, from devouring my son, comma, you have excelled in that. You have elevated out of that. Now, when you read it like that, if you say from devouring my son, comma, who's he talking about? Which son is he talking about? He's talking about Joseph. From devouring my son, Joseph, you have now elevated out of that. You, you, you're clean there. That's if you put the comma after the word my son. But if you put the comma after the word devouring, you could say like this. From devouring my dear son Yehuda, have you have been elevated out of that? So you could read the word my son could refer to Yosef, or my son could be referred to Yehuda. Depends where you put the comma. Do you read it from devouring my son you have elevated, or do you read from devouring my son has been elevated, Yehuda? So, depends how you read it. Now, if you read it like the second way, that my son goes on the devouring, sorry, like the first way, if you read it like the first way, that my son goes my son, devouring my son, then you're right. There's no interpretation to say that this has anything to do with the story of Tamar. Because you said, from devouring my son, means Yosef, does nothing to do with Tamar. But if you read it, the comma right after the word devouring. So from devouring, that has to do with the story of Joseph. My son Yehuda, you have been elevated. You could say it means my son Yehuda has been elevated from another story too. From the story of Tamar, where he says, Sadka many that you're righteous, you're true. It's true, it's from me. And that's how Rashi comes up. Because Rashi's basically telling you in a separate piece that the son, my son has been elevated there, over there he says I could teach you that it also has to do with the story with Tamar but what's the Rebbe's question now you're right, I get it, you could stretch it to mean that 
It means two stories Yehuda has come out of. He has been elevated the story of Yosef and the story of Tamar. But what was pressing Rashi? Why did Rashi care so much to include that Yehuda comes out clean also from the story of Tamar? Why does he need that? What, what does that help to anything to tell me that Yehuda is clean not just from the accusation that he was the one that devoured Yosef, but also he comes out clean from the story of Tamar? Especially when the word devouring is not even there by the story of Tamar. You don't have that in that story. So what was pressing, pressing Rashi so much? So in order to understand this, the Rebbe now basically, and you have to try to understand this whole picture, because the Rebbe is at a forbringing with thousands of people, and he's basically not a teacher that has a chalkboard on the wall and you, or a whiteboard today, and you could kind of put down all these points here and all these points here and say which one is stronger than the other. He's, he just assumes that we all know the Chumash so well, and therefore he presents us with a general amazing question. He puts out a general question on the whole story. We have now said up until now that Reuben did something wrong, and therefore, he doesn't get these certain blessings. And who gets the blessings? Yehuda, he's going to become the king. And it's from his descendants where you have the whole, where King David's going to come from and King Solomon's going to come from. The whole lineage of king is coming from over there. So he says, one second. You're, if we're talking about taking something away from Reuben and giving it to Yehuda, he says, let's understand something. Who's better, Reuben or Yehuda? He says, we could learn this here and show ourselves that actually it seems like Reuben, in comparison to Yehuda, is not so bad. As a matter of fact, in some ways, Reuben actually shows greater strengths. Let's see. Yehuda was the strongest of his brothers. As it says, you came out from the accusation of devouring, meaning he had that ability to devour somebody. Right? But Yehuda, at the end of the day, he was accused for this. And the accusation we also have on Reuben. Because we could say this idea that he was accused and he came out clean from the story that he did something good. He got Yosef to be taken out of the pit and be saved. But the Rebbe says, one second. Reuben also saved Yosef's life. Let's go back a little further, a little more back in the story of Joseph when he was brothers wanted to kill him. The first time when Shimon and Levi said, the dreamer is coming, Shimon says, the dreamer is coming, let's kill him. Who said not to kill him? Reuben's the one that said that. Reuben said, don't kill him. Let's not kill him. That led that instead of killing him, we threw him into a pit. But So just like you're telling me that Yehuda was so great that he said, what's the gain of keeping him in the pit? Let's sell him. Well, Reuben was first to jump to this. He was first to say, let's not kill him. Now, what happened in the story was that Reuben, when he said don't kill him, they all agreed. They said, okay, we won't kill him. We'll throw him into a pit. At least our hands won't kill him. Right? Now, what was Reuben's plan? His plan was let everybody go eat lunch. He'll come back. 
and he'll go to the pit and he'll take his brother out of the pit and bring him back to his father. That was his plan. But what happened was Reuben was out and while he was out, which we're soon going to find out what he actually did during that time when he was went somewhere. So Reuben, when he comes back to the pit, he sees the pit's empty and he finds out that the brothers took him out because of Yehuda's suggestion, don't leave him in the pit and we're going to sell him to the Ishmaelim. Let's not leave him, you know, to sit there dry with these uh, snakes and scorpions that were in this pit and hunger. So they decided to sell him. But who was first? Reuben was the first one to say, don't kill him. Now, even in the other story, in comparison to the story that Yehuda says to Tamar, I, like, I, I, you're right, I, I'm the one that did the sin. And in the story of Reuben, where he does something bad, he, he desecrates his father's bed. Rashi says that in the story where the brothers started negotiating, let's sell Yosef, Rashi says, you know where Reuben went? He says a few things. Well, one of the opinions he says is that Reuben was busy. He wasn't there when they were sold him. If he was there, he would have convinced them not to sell him and they'll bring him back to his father. But Reuben wasn't there. Why? Where was he? He was in the middle of doing repentance for the sin that he mixed into his father's bed. He went, it was his time of repentance, I guess every day or however often, that was his time when he would cry about that story. He would put sackcloths on him and he would do fasting atonements. So one, that's what it says. So he says, one second, you're telling me that Yehuda is so great because he told Tamar. He admitted he was wrong. What do you mean? Reuben also admitted he was wrong. As a matter of fact, it's been years now that Reuben is busy with his sackcloths and fasting. So why do you say that Reuben should lose this and it should go to Yehuda? Reuben's also an amazing tzaddik. He also repents for something that he did wrong. And in a way, actually, let's analyze this a bit, dra- a bit more. Not just that Reuben is equal to his brother Yehuda. Actually, in both stories, he's actually even greater than Yehuda. Let's think about this a second. Reuben, what was his intention? His brothers, don't sell him. I want to bring him back to daddy. That was his goal, to bring him back to his father. By Yehuda, it doesn't say that. His brothers actually once told him, Yehuda, they said, if you would have told us, not just take him out of the pit. What gain is there? If you would have told us to bring him back to our father, we would have listened to you. And another thing about Yehuda. Yehuda, when he said, Ma betza, Rashi says a fascinating thing. That word betza is a very funny word. It's an interesting word. When it says, when Yehuda said, what gain will we have? You know what he meant to say? Betza is a word that's used about money. That Yehuda was saying to his brothers, what profit, what gain, monetary gain will we have if we sell our brother? What, what's, what's the gain of doing that? We're going to sell our brother. No, sorry. What gain will we have if we leave him in the pit? Let's sell him and we'll make some money off it. So you're telling me that Reuben 
loses it to go to Yehuda. One second, Reuben's much better. He wanted to return him to his father. Yehuda says, let's take him out of the pit and sell him. He doesn't show any interest to even bring him back home to his father. And another thing, in the admission, where you, in comparison, let's now compare it to the sin with, with Tamar. When Yehuda admits, he's, all he does is he says, I'm sorry, I'm wrong. What else does he do after that? We don't find him repenting anywhere. However, by the, and think about it. If Yehuda knew, he did know, that if he doesn't admit, Tamar is going to be killed. And not just that. The baby or babies, let's say he knew that it was twins, they're going to die too. I mean, that's a lot of guilt to carry for the rest of your life. Yehuda was kind of in a way felt obligated to admit his sin. Because if he wouldn't say, if he wouldn't admit to his sin, look what the cause would come out of that. That would be crazy. Tamar would die and the kids, the fetuses. So when you think about it, Reuben, we just said he was in sackcloth and fasting. And by the way, the Rebbe makes a whole calculation here. You know how many years it is from the story where he moved his father's bed until the story when they sold Joseph. It's around nine years that means nine years later, he's still walking around with sackcloths and fasting. Now that's quite loyal to his repentance path. So again, you're trying to say that Reuben loses as it goes to, goes to Yehuda. The Rebbe says, this is mind-boggling. It totally doesn't make sense. Reuben, in comparison to Yehuda, is not, is, you can't even compare. Reuben's much better. Reuben wanted to give him back to his father. We don't see that over there. Reuben says, and Yehuda shows that he wants to save him only for, only for a few dollars, right? Even though he does save him from being killed, right? Of course, but at the end of the day, it's, it's a money thing. And Reuben wanted to do the father. And then when it comes to the repentance thing, Yehuda just says, sorry, 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 and goodbye. Reuben, for nine years already, he's fasting and, and sackclothing. And another thing, Let's go to another point where you'll see that Reuben is nowhere near as bad as he's meant to be, as he's kind of, you know, portrayed here. The Rebbe says, look at this. When he desecrated his father's bed, why did he do it? He did it because he was looking for the mitzvah of honoring his poor mother. Leah was so sad all her life, all her married life. The other wife gets all the, you know, majority of the attention so for the shaming, not to shame his mother Leah, the poor mother Leah, Reuben does this for a good reason. You're right, it's considered terrible that he mixed into his father's bed. But, hello, you can't blame him. He was doing this for the sake of his honoring of his mother. And as a matter of fact, Rashi himself said that Reuben didn't sin. It's not really called a sin, even though, by the way, the verse says that when Reuben moved the bed, it was as if he slept himself with Rachel's concubine Bilhah, which is, wow, that's pretty strong to say that. But at the end of the day, he didn't. He did not sin there. He did not sleep with Bilhah. It's only just to show us the magnitude of it. Rashi points out that Loi Chata Reuben, Reuben did not sin. And Rashi's proof is because right away after that, when 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 he wants when the next verse, when it starts to count out the kids, he calls him a bchur. And if he really had sin, he wouldn't even call him the firstborn like that. 
So in other words, right there in the same place where we're talking about, let's curse Reuben for touching his bed, we're still calling in the Bukhar. So you see, it's not really a sin. So again, it's totally mind-boggling. How could it be that because of Yehuda, who from devouring, he ascended from the story of devouring, we're going to give him kingdom the whole idea of sovereignty kingdom, which is the highest position possible, you get taking that away from Reuben and giving it to Yehuda, when you compare the two, Reuben's much greater than, than Yehuda actually. So the Rebbe says, if you really want to get it, to understand why Reuben loses it, it's the key actually is in the answer, in the explanation what Yaakov gives. What were the words that he gave? He's, Yaakov said two words. Pachas kamayim. You are haste like water. Rashi says that word haste really means to, if you want to elaborate on the word hasting mean, he says you haste and your confusion that you acted and you showed your anger. That's going to be the key here. The key is in those words, you acted haste and in confusion, and that's why you felt the need to let out your anger. You didn't think this through properly. That means, when Yaakov is, is saying this, there's two details here. There's the story itself that you desecrated your father's bed, yes. But then, there's the way you got to do that. And the way you got to do that is worse than the story itself. I want to actually use a side story to help us to understand this. I once heard the story many years ago. It's a very interesting story, but it brings out this point. I once heard that the Chafetz Chaim, who was one of the greatest leaders of the generations, just not to, you know, early 1900s, the Chafetz Chaim is known for his teachings about not to speak Lashon Hara. And he once came to the Rebbe Rashab, the fifth Chabad Rebbe, and he asked him why do you promote so much to your students that they should grow a beard? Why don't you promote more the mitzvah of not to speak Lashon Hara? Like that's something that's so easy for people to sin. Like let's talk more about that. And the Rebbe Rashab answered him that although there are opinions that you know, say that about beards that you're allowed to cut it in certain ways, whatever, but that's not the issue. He said for a person that knows that they should that they're at that level where they're not going to cut their beard, right? They don't they holding you know at those that standard. He said, "What happens when you cut a beard? You have to take your tools out, your, your, whatever you're gonna you have. You put them on the table, right? You go to the mirror, whatever you do, and you prepare yourself to shave." He said, "When it comes to speaking bad lashon hara, slander talk," he said that you don't prepare for it. You're sitting, you're talking with some people and it just plops out, ah, you have this idea. You, you, it's not a premeditated sin. And the Rebbe Rashab said that this, he sees this by all sins. A premeditated sin is worse. Because you know it's wrong and nevertheless, you're going to go and do it. It's like driving a half hour to go do a sin. I mean, right? I got to go pick up that food that's not kosher. Then you have enough time to think it over not to do it. So Yaakov is telling his son Reuben, the problem here was that you did, you acted on impulse. 
you thought this was a right thing, but you acted on impulse and you ran out of your anger. You went and you did this. And in each one of these two details is a certain punishment here for Reuben. The sin itself is one story. Or not, Rashi doesn't call it a sin. The, the, the desecrating of his father's bed is one thing. And the way you did it, that you jumped to do it, that's the big thing. Now, on the, on the violating of your father's bed, you lose only part of your firstborn rights. We quoted before from the book of Divrei Hayamim, from Chronicles, it says clearly there, because you desecrated your father's bed, you're, the double portion of the land of Israel is going to be to the two children of Yosef. Uh, by the way, what you see from here is there are other firstborn rights that he does get. He does get other things. Any other personal values that Yaakov gets, he gets double portion. He's still called the Bukhar in, 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 with service in temple. He still gets called the Bukhar whenever they count the census of the Jews. So he doesn't lose his Bukhar rights fully. He only loses firstborn rights in one area, which is, of course, a big thing. But he doesn't lose it completely. Now, in regards to your swiftness that you let out, you showed your anger, over there, you're not going to get anything more. In swiftness, there's something very important that's connected to the Kohen rights and kingdomship. Where do you see such important things about swiftness that we need those qualities to be the, to be the Kohen and to be a king? So the Rebbe explains that in those two areas of Kohen and Kuhuna and Malchus, you see something very important where if you're too swift and you act on impulse, somebody else could get hurt. And what's crucial for a Kohen is the care for another person. And what's crucial for a king is the care for other people. That is that position. The whole position of a Kohen is what? Lift up your hand and bless other people. That's it. Your care is one thing. How could I care about somebody else? This thing of a Kohen is also to teach laws to the other Kohen, teach people how to act, how to judge people, and so on. Kohen has the spiritual roles of of leadership that's relevant to other people. Kingdomship. To be a king, you have to care about all the needs of people. Like Rashi actually says on these words, young lion. On the word young, he says, because you a king, why does he call Judah a young lion? Young, Rashi says, it refers to somebody that could go in and out the whole time. So in other words, you're able to move around easily, young, to take care of your the necessities of what you're the king over. And when it says that you crouch down like a lion, that means crouching down means the sign of a lion when he's crouched down, he's resting, he's calm, secure. That's the main thing of a king. When a king has good control over his country, over his people, he makes sure everybody has what they need. People are not fighting. Nobody has to worry while they're sleeping that they may be attacked from somewhere else, as Rashi brings down. They are there, Levetach, they're there with such comfort and security that they don't have to worry about anything. That's the key about these two positions. Kohen and kingdom is caring about other people. Now you went and fast, hasted your way to show your anger. That's why you did and you what you did to your father's bed. You did it right away. That's why you're being punished measure for measure. Because you showed something when it's relevant 
to somebody else, but it came across in a wrong way, you can't be the one to have the kahuna, the Kohen rights, which is relevant to somebody else, or the idea of being a king. But when it comes to you yourself, you yourself, you did something bad, wrong, you did something wrong, we're not calling it, it's a mistake, right? Because you thought that you're there to honor your mother and that's why you did it. For that, you're going to lose something for yourself, your own self, your children, we're not going to get double portion in the land because that's relevant to you. That has to do only with you. Now we can understand an interesting thing. Well, Rashi says that the general idea of Bechor, of being the firstborn, wasn't taken away from Reuben, the general idea. Right? And only, he, and he still has the idea of the firstborn, of the inheritance stuff. And Rashi said he's not called even a sin. Because his intention was to protect his mother's embarrassment. And that's why he's still called a Bukhar, because really he had good intention. And you were sitting in sackcloth and fasting. But what were you missing? You were missing something of a firstborn in relation to the tribes in general, but not in relation to you specifically. There's a difference. You specifically, you came out of that clean, Reuben. No problem with that. But in ge- in the general sense of stuff, you lose that part of the pe- parts of the land. So now, when Yehuda said, Ma Betza, he said, what's the gain to take him out? And that saved Yosef from being killed. Reuben that said, don't kill him. What did they do? They put him into a pit. But one second. When you put him into a pit, did you save him from be, from dying? No. There's still a hunger that's racing over Joseph's head. There's still snakes and scorpions in the pit. So for that, Yehuda actually does better in that point. That Yehuda actually saved Yosef from actually being killed. Even though Reuben had better intention. His intention was to get him back to his father. But he was still in risk of Danger for Yosef's life. Yehuda, on the other hand, may have not had intention to bring him back to his father. All he wanted was a few bucks here. But at least he's in the, in the factual reality is he saved his life. And that's a big difference. So when you measure the, the fact result, Yehuda does better because he actually saved his life. When it comes to the story of his admitting to Tamar again, he saves her from dying. It's true, he doesn't have to repent and cry for years, but he admitted to something in public and that saved another person's life. So again, those positions of kingdom is all about, do you save the people or not? Reuben, very nice, you had very good intentions, we have no beef with you about that. But when it comes to those other positions, you can't say that you saved Yosef from dying. He could have died from hunger or the snakes and scorpions. And that's why it's considered to be that where Reuben's mistake is because ultimately he can't get the credit that he saved Yosef from death itself. That's why he stays, the fact that he stayed in sackcloths and fasting, that's something that that do with him. As a matter of fact, it's interesting. If you, let's think of this for a second, the Rebbe says. If Reuben was not dealing with fasting and sackcloths over him, where would have he been together with his brothers? When they would have said, let's, let's sell him, Reuben would have been there to stop the sale. But because he was busy 
for himself, busy repenting for that story that he had on his chip of his shoulder, he wasn't there to prevent the next step that he shouldn't even be sold. Because he certainly could have come up with some excuse to tell his brothers not to sell them. Like he said before to them, don't kill them. That's why Yosef, That's why Yehuda is the one that ascended, ascends from the devouring because it's relevant to the other person and saving the other person. Reuben, we can't say that. Now, therefore, Rashi brings both ideas regarding Yehuda that he speared from being devouring of Yosef, but also the thing of Tamar to show that he had both things about Reuben. Reuben had the 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 uh, desecrating his father's bed, but he also had the swiftness part of it, which was what got him into trouble here. But that's only relevant to himself. But when he, but in comparison to Yehuda, Yehuda ultimately comes out on top because he had the ultimate success in showing and getting that Yosef should not be killed and Tamar should not be killed. And that's what's more important, your intention or the results? Reuben does amazing on intention, but Yehuda does amazing on results. And results in life trump. Action is the most important. You could have every nice intention in life, but if you don't have results to show, you could end up in Reuven's seat. And this is where the Rebbe concludes with this beautiful lesson. He said the lesson is very simple. A Jew is not allowed to be to satisfy himself with taking care of yourself. I'm going to work on my perfection. I'm going to dive in. I'm going to learn. It's all about me. You must also spend time to worry about how can I help others. To do a favor of a Yisrael for another Jew to do another good deed to somebody else. We have to be busy with this. You don't just sit home. I'm using my own words, but this is what he's saying here. You don't just sit home and wait till somebody knock on your door to, that you could help them. You, we have to go out and make a difference in helping another person. Because that loving your fellow Jew, this is the entire idea of the whole Torah. That even that you yourself may not be on such a high level like the other person. Who, and you could be in whatever stage you're in, you have to be busy with helping another person. And even more, this point comes out even more in this following statement. In the outcome of Reuben and Yehuda, let's, Rebbe does this, analyzing this in the final two paragraphs to this essay. He says, look, the outcome of Reuben that he was busy with his religious atonements, with his sackcloth and fastings, allowed and gave the window of opportunity that his brothers ended up selling Yosef. Now, if you think of the domino effects of that, the, the selling of Yosef leads to the fact that his family suffers from a famine. They have to come down to Egypt. The Jewish people as a whole big family are stuck now in Egypt. And then we have an entire exile in Egypt for 210 years. Look at that. Look what could have been prevented possibly if Reuben would have not been so worried about his own 
place and relationship, if he would have took concern at that moment, when he saw that it was hasty and not settled going on with his brothers and, and Yosef, he should have stayed there with them and not went to do his, what he was doing with his sackcloth and fastings. On the other hand, now let's look at Yehuda's side. When Yehuda says, Tzad come me many, it's correct, it's for me. Now, it's true, he doesn't reach the level of repentance like Reuben did. That's true. But you know what? Let's look at the outcome of it. What happens? Tamar stays alive. The children are born. Guess who's born from that union? Peretz. Peretz is the great-great-grandfather of David, who's the great-great-ancestor of the king of Mashiach. Imagine that. Mashiach is the ultimate redeemer that's going to, parrots means like, like kind of like, like jumping through something, uh, uh, breaking fences, just like charging out in a jumpy way. Parrots represent this idea that we're going to break through all the boundaries of this exile and we're going to bring Mashiach. Now look at it, those two ways. It's, uh, it's incredible. Reuben, who did amazing in his teshuva, but ultimately, he was so busy in his tshuva that he wasn't there to possibly turn around the story of the sale of Yosef. Yehuda may have not been the best, highest spiritual level. That's true. But the outcome of his, and that's ultimately what we get judged for. What we get judged for is not how much how you could grow in your own personal spiritual. It's about how do you affect and help to others. That's the ultimate thing. Now what's fascinating to me is, is that this sicha was said in 19, the beginning, at this time of the year, of this Parsha Vayichi of 1970, which is only a few months after he gave that blessing of Yeser Seis Yeser Us. Just an interesting uh, detail of how things are. If you look into things, you, there's got to be some connection there. So let us all be blessed with the blessings of Reuben and even though it went to Yehuda, we should all be able to have it in our lives.